0: This is The Weekend Variety Wireless, on Radio Live. Hello. Welcome to The Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. Go to The Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and treat you too. There's a lot of stuff there, not just what's on the tonight and tomorrow night. The archives are all there. Oh boy. Counting down to Armistice has been amazing with Glenn Harper. It's now a podcast on the News Hub website, which is great. Good on you for doing that. The final part, of course, tomorrow, Armistice Day, falls on our Sunday, so it's a biggie with Glenn Harper tomorrow. Jesus make it stop.
1: People are fighting and dying up to the 11th hour of the 11th month in 1918 and unfortunately that's a fact that some of them are killed in the last few days of the war and
0: indeed some are killed on the last morning of the war. Also tomorrow night, we've got a special guest, Brian Cox, the Brainiac physicist, who's one of the most popular TV presenters you could think of. You know, the guy looks like he should be on Coronation Street, but he's actually at the Large Hadron Collider.
1: Science as a a profession, if you're a research scientist, is pretty much being wrong all the time. And then just now and again, it turns out that you're not wrong
0: and you're delighted. And if stereotypes are applicable, I think sometimes they are, we've got a quantum physicist tomorrow night and I just asked him this. A lot of quantum stuff is adopted by spooky folk like Deepak Chopra that say we're all connected and our consciousnesses are are all, I don't know, woo words really because of quantum this and quantum that. What do you make of quantum abuse like that? So are you allowed to say bullshit on the radio? I think you say it again, if you like.
2: <laughs> so I
0: think it's bullshit, yes. All right, good one. Um, that's all tomorrow night, but coming up very shortly, it is the Science Hour. Uh, and later on, oh, have a listen to the bloke about our New Zealand reptiles and go to the Weekend Variety Wireless and have a look at some of them. A new field guide's out, and it's just a big, fat excuse to talk about them. You think New Zealand's a land of birds? Eh, eh, eh. Far many more and varied reptiles we have. Should be Land of Reptiles though it usually feels like, you know, Australia gets that gong. Alright, Science Report with Rochelle Constantine next and if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage you'll be able to delve into this incredibly made uh, website on blue oceanic carbon. It will be explained after this commercial break. Good evening. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth.
1: (laughs) Weekend Variety
0: Wireless, on Radio Live. Rochelle Constantine, in today for Science Report, specialist subject, marine biology. Your time starts now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, where to start?
0: I know where to start, just a really trivial thing. You know how um, some people get quite annoyed that it was George W. Bush and many others, I don't know if he started it, instead of saying nuclear, he'd just go nuclear? And I go, what? It's nuclear, this nuclear, that. Because to a marine biologist, a nuclear nuclear is a real thing. It's a tiny little pippy.
2: That's right. And you
0: you learn about them.
2: Yeah, it's one of our many filter feeders. We weren't sure why he was so interested in them.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, that's um, a very, very minor (laughs) grievance. But uh, in the realm of marine biology, (laughs) let's talk about, uh, well, you've provided this link to a thing called um blue ocean carbon that's right yeah. yeah it's a beautifully constructed webpage explaining something that's probably um, goes amiss
2: absolutely so this uh, group the grid Arendal, which is a Norwegian foundation that works quite closely with the United Nations Environment Program and their main aim is to get environmental, information out there in accessible ways so put the link on online folks um, and you can check it out so what they've done is they've compiled this um document about blue carbon and in particular blue ocean carbon so what's blue carbon well it's all of the things that live in and around the ocean so from the estuarine edges to the bottom of the sea so it includes mangroves and seagrasses and kelp and then of all all the animals in there and so they've um had a, a so I guess summarising, you know, all the information we have to date, we know that phytoplankton are, um, uh, are great absorbers of carbon dioxide from the system and atmospheric carbon dioxide, you know, raising is the issue around climate change or the major drive around climate change. And so um, phytoplankton are, are great um absorbers of this carbon dioxide, but they are the beginning of the food chain. So the minute that a plankton, a zooplankton eats them and then a fish eats the zooplankton and so on and so on, up to a very large fish, you actually have carbon being trapped in the system. Mm. And so that carbon within the system is moving in all kinds of ways in the ocean and with vertebrates, you know, with large... um, vertebrates throughout the oceans, from the smallest of fish to the largest of whale. The carbon can move in a variety of different ways and they, they outline them really nicely on, on this webpage. But one thing um, that I think, you know, really resonated with me is just sometimes the scale and volume of movement of of the sort of energy through the system. And they were talking, uh, in particular, there were a couple of really good examples. One was around trophic cascades. So a trophic cascade in the ocean is about the trophic level. So where do you sit? You know, those sort of what eats what? And how does it go from the, the, uh, the herbivores to the, you know, omnivores, the carnivores and so on? And that system works exactly the same on land and in sea but in those trophic cascades where you mess with the system in some way so for example uh, that one they used was off california where a lot of otters disappeared and so the uh, sea urchins you know, multiplied in number, ate a lot of the kelp forests, and really severely altered the the carbon energy flow within the system. So with the recovery of sea otters, what they've found is that the system is now working better. There are more kelp forests, there's greater biodiversity, there's more carbon uh, dioxide being trapped in in the system and energy sort of, you know, trapped in that way within the system. So much so that um, in areas where there are, uh, you know, fully restored kind of, Otter populations, and this was off the west coast of the United States. This particular example, they found that it was around 402,000 square kilometres of forest worth of carbon energy being stored because the otters are restored. So I'm, I'm using a forest kind of example. So it's 402,000 square kilometres of forest equivalent because the otters. otters. Are, are doing okay. Go and otters. It, go otters. But it's not just the otters. That was the example they've used. But I was thinking about here in our backyard with the snapper. Yeah. You know, and I know we've talked about that, but, you know, snapper are a really important um, organism for keeping uh, kinna under control. I mean, there are other things that eat kinna, of course. But in those systems where we've degraded them, you know, we've removed really important organisms to make that trophic uh, s- uh, flow and energy flows work properly mm. by us taking all the snapper out and eating them. Them or a lot of snapper out of the system, what we've effectively done is really messed with the carbon uh, storage and carbon flows and and subsequently carbon dioxide storage oh. capacity within marine systems. And they had another really... Um, so that's kind of on a smaller, you know, you eat what lives near you kind of scale. But they also had some really great examples of are uh, they called the whale conveyor belt. So, you know, the humpback whales and blue whales and what have you are down in the in the summer feeding in, uh, in Antarctic waters in the Southern Ocean. And then they just, once they leave there, they stop feeding. But what they do, all of that krill that they've got inside them, they sort of poop it out on the way as they swim north up towards the tropical, uh, tropical um, breeding grounds for the winter. And that... You know, poop is carbon. It's, mm. it's energy that goes back into the system. Now, some of it gets consumed by, you know, little greeblies that eat, happy to eat poo for a living. Um, but most of it actually drops down quite rapidly to the seabed. And most um, most phytoplankton, for example, I think it's around 95% of phytoplankton, even though it's the beginning of the food chain, uh, doesn't get consumed. It actually drops down through uh, the, the the ocean because gravity gets you in the ocean as well and down to the seabed. And so those sediments, especially in super deep ocean, within that sediment, uh, carbon can be locked up for millions, you know, hundreds of millions. thousands, millions of years. Because, because
0: we dig it up. We see it as limestone. That's all limestone that, that's, that's is. Carbon. It's a former old seabed. And what a massive carbon sink that's that right. is.
2: And oil. Yes. Yeah. There you go. And so oil is, you know, the example of under pressure and all that carbon under pressure turns into oil, which Mm. we then extract and then we release it back into the system. But, you know, for me, I I guess the thing with the oceans is we never see this stuff, you know, we never see it. And one of the largest sort of biomasses we have or fish biomasses we have in the ocean is for the mesopelagic fishes. So these are fishes that live at around about 600 to 1,000 plus meters-ish, give or take, deep. So they live kind of in the twilight zone down to the dark water. And then every uh, night they rise up near the surface of the water called the deep scattering layer. Up they come and they feed on um, zooplankton and phytoplankton or whatever they're eating uh, up near the surface waters. And then when the sun starts coming up, they all go back down to the depths of the ocean again. So what they're doing is they're coming to the surface and eating this this carbon from the surface, this carbon dioxide that's, you know, wrapped up in the plankton, making them grow carbon consumed near the surface of the water, but then it's taken down into the deep, deep sea mm. where they poop it out and then it gets locked up. And so this kind of movement of energy flow through marine systems is is horizontal, but it's also vertical. Right. And that's something I think, you know, for those of us landlubbers and all of the terrestrial things we think about, which... Again, only 30% of our planet is terrestrial. We don't think, you know, so much about that that vertical because it's not, you know, sure, you can stand there and look at a really tall tree and there's some atmospheric processes clearly going on, but nothing like what we see in the yeah. ocean and the movement of biodiversity. So there's lots of really um, neat kind of ways that they've put this together, you know, to help us think about it. So, for example, the the um, mesopelagic Pelagic fish movement. They uh, they estimated that it was around. I think it was four hundred and eighty or something thousand. Yeah, around four hundred and eighty thousand square kilometres of forest. Mm. You know, I mean these are. When you think of that much forest, it's like mind-blowing.
0: I suspect jellyfish do a lot of work too.
2: Oh, yeah, everything, salps jellies. I mean, this is the thing with the ocean. From the seemingly smallest, most inconsequential thing Mm. up to the largest has a very big role to play. And then, you know, locking up carbon, things like as the whale populations increase in number, which they are doing, uh, almost all of them are, you know, on their way up, uh, you know, when a whale dies, you've got... I don't know, give or take 40 to 60 or so tonnes of, of carbon locked up in that animal that falls to the seabed. And and so this is a way of kind of carbon sequestration. So now it's got to the point where the IPCC, that International Plan on Climate Change, the International Whaling Commission, um, the big United Nations oceans uh, meetings that they've been having, where they're now going, wow, this this ocean carbon, blue blue carbon thing is something we shouldn't ignore. And so for people like me who work in that biological realm, we're like, yeah, and it's something that I'm hoping to see will actually be built into fisheries management or any kind of, you know, marine resource management um, or living resource management uh, actions. it's like, well, wait a minute. Okay, so we set... The stock, you know, the limit that we can take from the stock of fish, you know, for our fisheries, that's fine. Of course, that carbon's going to get locked up on land because we eat it and it gets pulled into the terrestrial system, but it's much better off in the marine system. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how in the future we start thinking about fisheries management that we actually bring in well the cost of those fish alive mm. to our our planet actually functioning and dealing with a way of dealing with climate change how can we, we in m- increase been? the
0: carbon sequestration in the deep sea
2: well, there's been a lot of trick uh, whales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that wasn't the NR category. I think they tried that once. Spectacular fail. But it does lead to, you know, um, where there there's efforts now being made to actually capture those mesopelagic fishes. They're to, you know, they're often quite small fishes, and mm. they're, they're they're amazing. And, but that's where the biomass is, and there's a, it's already starting. But I think it needs the handbrake pulled on it that we actually now start fishing down in those super. Deep oceans, Uh because that's not okay. That's gonna, you know, we've got rid of so many of our near-surface fish stocks. You know, and I mean, a couple of hundred meters. You know, our tunas are pretty deep, aren't they? Yeah, they're super deep. Yeah, Uh. they're a super deep fish. But you know, targeting these sort of really critical uh, things like the mesopelagic fishes, I think you know the handbrake needs to be pulled on that because now's the time where we could perhaps make a difference. So I really enjoyed that report and, you know, it just got me thinking. It looks yeah.
0: beautiful, too. It's and a, it looks beautiful. It's, it's really easy to read. It's to, a delight to go through. It really yeah, comes alive.
2: Yeah, they did a good job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we've got a direct link to it on the Weekend Variety Wireless web page, Blue Ocean Carbon. Um, oh, we've been entertaining a few of the Marsden Fund recipients. Mm. They get money just to find out how stuff works yeah. rather than um, to, uh, particular purpose blue sky research Mm -hmm. um and later on this evening we'll be um, speaking with someone who's trying to make a reckons they have a way of maybe curing curry dieback so i don't know if this is blue sky research but it could have implications on administering a drug a plant so i thought i'd mention that because um fund some of your colleagues have
2: yeah yeah some of my colleagues have received marsden funding it's it's pretty competitive i think the success rate is uh someone said it's getting up closer to 10 percent now but it's a a massive amount of effort for a low return rate um yeah we can't fund all of the good ideas in the world but yeah some great ideas in there and and this one on the Cody dieback in particular is interesting because we've been a little bit remiss in our action on that front Mm. and i live out in the waitakere so all our tracks are closed um, but it's, you know, and that's what we have to do, the rahui is a, is a great idea. Yeah. But it's it's a real challenge, so time for some smart thinking on that one.
0: Alright, let's talk about dogs and their noses.
2: Yeah. So, I'd love uh,
0: to be a dog for about half an hour just to f- just to know what that's like.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Only if you had the dog appreciation for your nose that close yeah. to that turd or stinky, oh, dead thing. Oh, but you'd
0: get a map of all sorts of information. That's right. When it was laid, male or female. Yeah. It did How
2: it was feeling
0: yeah what it was eating yeah,
2: did, uh, it, did it have you know dry food or a, a <laughs> juicy bone
0: <laughs> yeah it's better than a barcode reader okay <laughs> dogs noses
2: yeah so um I've, I've been thinking about dogs last weekend i was uh at the funeral of uh, scotty theobald who was married to a very dear friend of mine and uh, he was the dock ranger who who unfortunately died in that helicopter crash down near wanaka and um an amazing man i mean all three people who were in that helicopter were amazing people. But Scotty um, started the uh, conservation dog program in New Zealand. And, you know, he's one of those guys that just, you know, spent all his time outdoors and in the bush. He's a pig hunter and, you know, knows dogs. People who know dogs, uh, you know, really appreciate the the abilities they have that uh, that, you know, far exceed ours. And so, you know, he got to thinking, well, could we use these dogs to to maybe try and find some of these, you know, pests and that, especially in tricky places or to, you know, when we think we've cleared a place of of pests, you know, can we send the dogs in to look for them? And sure enough, Or just ask,
0: it's like, why not ask the dog? It might know.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how Scotty We think, ah,
0: this is no more possums here and the dog's going, I can smell a possum, I wish he'd ask me. (laughs)
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you know, and that's the thing, you know, if you, for him, you know, as as a pig hunter, he knew his dogs would smell and hear and you yeah, know, things... Often well before he did. They just had a different, you know, you way of using their senses. Even yeah. though we've all sort of built with the same machinery, dogs use, um, I mean their sense of smell is incredible, and we know that. So he um, developed the conservation dog program, which I think I think there's up uh, 30 conservation dogs now around New Zealand, and a lot of those dogs were at his funeral, which was really nice. Right. There should be more dogs at funerals, I decided from this. It just added one of those, yeah, this is what it's about moments. But those dogs are trained, each dog is trained for a particular pest, so they'll they'll focus on um, on rats or stoats or possum, whatever it might be, cats, whatever it might be, and they are. I think one of the the biggest tools we have in our toolbox now for uh, especially going to places where we think we've got rid of the pests or we're not sure if there are stoats there or there might have been a rat come off a boat or on a boat, so doing biosecurity at the beginning but through to checking our conservation spaces. Right,
0: just like customs.
2: That's right, just like customs, just like the the customs dogs. And so, you know, because dogs have been on my brain, they're they're never too far from my brain. I am a fan of them. Um, I I was reading... um, the other day this really neat uh, piece of work that's been supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they've put a lot of their money into malaria. It's one of the causes they've chosen. Because it's in Africa, you know, generally it's a poor person's uh, disease, so it's been pretty well ignored, as is often the case. And over the last, you know, more than decade now, they've been investing in research. But this one in particular was interesting. So what they did is they got uh, a bunch of kids in Gambia, sort of young kids, teenagers, and they had to wear these socks and they wore the socks overnight and then they sent the socks off to a, a lab where they were training dogs to smell malaria now all of these children were were well you know they they had no they weren't and uh, having malarial fits or there were no signs that they had malaria
0: but they had the parasite in their system
2: that's right and the dogs were able to detect 70% of the time correctly that this person was carrying malaria.
0: Wow, symptomless.
2: Symptomless, yeah, that's right. But they had malaria, and so as we know, all uh, you know, the the um, mosquito needs is to get blood from someone with malaria, and then they've they've got it. They go bite someone else, and then that person you know potentially is going to yeah. catch malaria as well. So one of the big things that's going on in Africa, they actually have areas now where they've to all intents and purposes cleared malaria out. They've been using some of the CRISPR technologies, gene editing technologies, to create um, uh, sort of eradicate the malaria from the insect, uh, from the um, mosquitoes in that place. But, and so what they're trying to do is with people moving around more and, and certainly throughout the world people are becoming more, more mobile, they are... Um, looking towards, well, could we use these dogs in airports to sniff people and go, look, you're symptomless but you have malaria and you're going to this place which is malaria free and we really don't want you going there because if one of them the mosquitoes are still there but if one of them bites you, you could uh, start off a chain of malaria in that. And And so much
0: work and effort goes into clearing these places. That's right. That's right.
2: And also, you know, for helping people if they've got malaria but are symptomless, helping to get onto um, you know, giving them medical treatment early before it goes too far because it can be hugely debilitating in many of these communities. So I just thought that was another, like, you know, dogs in their noses. Amazing. Mm. Mind blown.
0: And malaria used to be throughout the Western world. That was what was it? it? Was one of Mussolini's great achievements? <laughs> if, we, if we're going to put out one of those pamphlets, um, draining the swamps in Italy. Because yeah, malaria
2: was everywhere in Europe. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And and we're getting you know with, with climate change, you know, and changing in uh, temperatures and rainfall and potential for these um, mosquitoes to actually get hold again. You know, it's not going to be too far away that places that haven't had you know malarial mosquitoes are yeah. going to have
0: them again so oh, yeah mosquitoes so, are amazing animals but i hate them <laughs> <laughs> oh it's the noise yeah get off me yeah oh they, they yeah.
2: are annoying all
0: right <laughs> okay uh rochelle constantine thank you so much for science report this week and we'll see you in a few weeks time cheers
2: yeah. Kia
0: ora. you're tuned in to the weekend variety wireless <laughs>
2: astronomy today with dr grant christie
0: all the astronomy news from the week and oh tomorrow night is it tomorrow night yeah brian cox i've got an interview with brian cox the uh what the hell is he He's a particle, he's a, he's a large particle. hadron a collider, isn't he? He's a particle
1: physicist, but he's uh, amazing uh, yeah. ability to communicate complex science to the public. Uh, I love listening to him. He's really terrific. Yeah,
0: he's great. He'll be on tomorrow night around about 9.30, so quite uh, science i I'll be listening. Good. All right. Um, let's talk about a couple of these links that we have up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. A uh, Landing test. Um, on Ryugu. Now Ryugu was one that looked like a, a UFO, and the new one looks like a UFO yeah, as yeah. well.
1: We don't understand why. There's something uh, that really nobody had predicted that this would happen. So both of these are really small. Uh, asteroids uh, the ryugu one the japanese uh, spacecraft is orbiting at the moment is about uh, around about a kilometer across mm. uh, and the one that the american satellite osiris rex is just approaching it's now within a few hundred uh, kilometers uh, and uh, it's uh, about half that size about half a kilometer across
0: what's its name we need to get used to its name we've gotten used to that's
1: benu yeah yeah and they've just posted a really neat we'll put that up on the line as yeah. well it's a really wonderful animation showing a full rotation of it um benu benu uh, this is the uh, just from the uh, NASA mission mm. uh and it's going to get a lot better soon it's it shows the textures more variable i think than uh, it shows for
0: uh It Uh, looks familiar somehow. It's just you could like you'd reach out and touch it. It's got a wart. Yeah, that's right. Well, In the southern
1: hemisphere, there near its south pole, is a big boulder sitting on the surface, big lump of something, and it looks like it's ready to fly off uh, because the object, the asteroid, is rotating. Uh, As we get closer images of that, it's going to be fascinating to see what that projection is. Otherwise, I mean, it's way bigger than anything else sitting on the surface. Yeah. And uh, so whether it's, uh, well, Hello. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Well, so, someone's I mean, been there
0: first. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> that
0: thought did pass my mind, Graham, but <laughs> I put it out of my mind pretty quickly after that. Okay, these uh, UFO-shaped, incidentally, uh, asteroids, fascinating things. I really love the video we've got up there of, uh, you can see the shadow of the, the craft coming into yeah. Ryugu. Because the sun's and, directly behind yeah. it, so it's shadows
1: cast on the surface, yes. And it's beautiful close-up stuff, it looks oh. like. Oh, it actually reminded me
0: a little bit of the moon landing without actually landing.
1: Well, that's right, and uh, I mean, just put it in perspective, this is the first time humans have ever seen this sort of stuff before. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh you know these are asteroids that uh are thought to have played a major role in sort of p- filling the earth's uh, oceans with the right sort of stuff that
0: you know allowed us to uh to evolve. We're getting used and to, to these, these sort of form. events and taking them for granted but goodness me, go out and try it really you've got something, find it, <laughs> shoot something at it and get close to oh, it. Oh the, the navigation is just stunning that they can track these
1: things down and approach yeah. them and it all hits, uh, they, they hit their timelines within hours mm.
0: uh, after years in space tracking these things down That's How to get there? Mind boggling Yeah, although you don't have to cope with weather which is a good thing, you point it straight it's going to go straight. Pretty much so unless you have a spacecraft problem but it's everything's going well with these two at the moment. All right, now New Horizons, uh, this thing to the Kuiper Belt, K-U-I-P-E-R, that's a famous area of weird stuff outside of Pluto.
1: Yes, that's right. So this is the New Horizons spacecraft, NASA's one, that flew by Pluto in 2015 and got us those marvellous images as it flew by Pluto and Charon, Uh, amazing stuff, and then they sort of set it on a course to approach another object further on uh, just because it still had fuel and could be controlled, uh, why, why, not, why, why not make use of it? Mm. So they sent it towards this new um, asteroid that wasn't known to exist at the time the spacecraft was even launched. It was only found in 2014 um, and uh, so it's now approaching that. It's now um, the, it, I think it's a. it does its fly by on the 1st of January coming up. Okay. Okay, so I thought that when it was launched it was originally going to be the 4th of January, but it's, they're giving now the 1st of January as the flyby. Um, and it's looking towards Sagittarius. Uh, in other words, the, the spacecraft is looking at the its target, but in the background is the constellation Sagittarius, which has got a lot of stars in it. Yeah. Um, they've posted a pictures from the spacecraft that
0: uh, show the... Ah, oh, it's fallen off. Never mind. Yeah. Keep it going. The picture's from the spacecraft. Where yeah. are they posting it? It's
1: a picture of a star field. Basically what they're doing in the camera on the board of the spacecraft is they're photographing the object silhouetted against the stars and Sagittarius, and there's a lot of them. So they're sending these images back to Earth, and the scientists in the mission then analyse these images, and they can use that to work out exactly where the spacecraft is very Uh accurately. And so they're they're expecting to pass the asteroid within about uh, a distance of about 3,500 kilometres. They're currently searching the space around the asteroid to to see if it's maybe got a moon. Uh, They want to know whether it's got rings. All of those are theoretically possible, although it's a small object. Only about 50 kilometres across, yeah, uh, and uh, it's um, th- they don't. They want to avoid that sort of stuff. They don't want to have the spacecraft going flying through some dusty ring or something by mistake yeah. and it sort of could really seriously damage the spacecraft. So they're currently exploring the space in front of them, looking for hazards, working out where the spacecraft is exactly, and, and they should hit their target position unless they have to do a course manoeuvre. They expect to hit it within about 10 kilometres. So 10 kilometres after 6 billion kilometres is a pretty good uh, shot. Mm-hmm. So, so I wonder what so this thing's ca- going
0: to look like. it going to look like a damn UFO as well. Well,
1: this is a, a primitive object that's never been near the sun ever in its entire life, unlike these asteroids that we're looking at with these other missions. So this is something out way beyond Pluto. Uh, it's about 50% further than Pluto is mm-hmm. away. And uh, it's got a... Uh, uh, so it's primitive material. It's sort of stuff that... Uh, you know, basically formed when the sun formed and it hasn't been modified since it's not close to the sun so it hasn't been changed by the heat of the sun it's it's pristine material so this will be the first ever real look at it pluto has been uh, a more complicated history but this object has never been at any time uh, um, what appears to be pristine material. So that, that's really important. A pity they can't grab a sample of it, but at least taking pictures of it, mm. measuring the chemistry of the surface and so on, uh, which we'll see
0: in a little over a month. Now, just a little thing on Pluto. Um, I'm I'm certainly not going to be the first person who uh, suggested this. The Neptune is way out there. yes, And it's got a moon called Triton and it looks just like Pluto, doesn't it? Yes. Well, there was a
1: theory once that uh, uh, that Triton. Well, it, it, well, Triton is also orbiting backwards around Neptune, so that it, it's obviously been a capture at some point in the. Oh, okay, in so no nice the surprises but, there. But they've also an, analysed the uh, orbital possibilities of whether Pluto could have ever been in orbit around Neptune, and they've basically eliminated those. So oh. it's. Uh, it, there's no scenario that they can construct that but something pluto- but one of the ideas once was that uh, maybe pluto first formed as a moon around neptune this other object came in displaced pluto pushed it out and it became and triton it took its place essentially right. but uh, no there's no mathematical way that can happen but so. there's a
0: maybe a plutoey thing got captured by Neptune. Uh, yeah, that. well, that's, that's yeah. exactly what
1: Triton is. And Triton also got active volcanism, on, well, cryovolcanism on the surface. That was discovered by the uh, flyby of the Voyagers.
0: Yeah. Voyager 2. Yeah. Well, that's where I was reminded, I, watching that amazing Voyager documentary. The yeah. And there's Triton. And you go, oh, hello. Yeah. That's well, the only ty-
1: the only images we have. Yeah. It,
0: one came from Voyager in the 1980s, and it got mm. out there. Now, Mo, um, 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 uh, the long... Well, we thought it was a shard, when I say we, you, yeah. thought it was a long shape. <laughs> Don't sh- blame me. <laughs> a shard, weird shape, like a cigar or something, so everyone's going, are um, uh, uh, people waving out the windows? Well,
1: that's right, because, you know, this thing has a ratio, size ratio uh, of about six to one, mm. uh, I mean, that, that, that's unlike anything in the solar system. We have no object ever found in our solar system that has this weird, long, cigar-shaped other than bits
0: of the Saturn 5.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I mean it, it was a complete and utter surprise to astronomers yeah. and it was the last thing you expected. And the other thing we were expecting to see was interstellar comet, though we expected to see it as a come through as a comet heated up by the sun, outgassing and so on and then fly off again. That would be the what everyone was expecting so this sort of misses all those boxes basically it's just a weird shape that is no parallel in our solar system mm. and also when the when the astronomers through the brief time they were able to study it with the Hubble and so on detected no outgassing at all zero uh, so although, and that's what you expect from a comet, there's sort of ices and stuff, and as they get heated by the sun, they outgas, and that's what produces the tails of comets. This thing seemed to give out nothing. Mm. Um, and the other peculiar th- thing about it is that uh, they measured its velocity as it was coming through. And, you know, you can allow for the gravity of all the things in the solar system and, and so on and calculate where it should be, and it w- it was gaining speed as it left that you can't explain completely from gravity mm. uh, and you could uh, you could explain it by outgassing but they didn't see any outgassing um, and so this this paper's been published Oh, it's not. It hasn't been published. It's been submitted for publication in a fairly big journal from astronomers at uh, Harvard, which is a very prestigious university uh, in astronomy in particular. Uh, and uh, so, they've th- these two uh, astronomers, distinguished people, have. Uh, submitted this paper sort of making a case that maybe this is an interstellar spaceship Mm uh and their so their basis is that um is is this anomalous speed that it gained uh, and then they looked at the light variations now when astronomers the reason they know or believe it has this elongated shape is that uh when they measure its brightness changes as it was rotating they went up and down in such a way that computer models you can fit those and show that only that sort of shape is going to fit the light variations. In other words, these light variations were caused by an irregularly shaped object rotating on a, in a complicated way. Right. And that that took a fair bit of work. So It's not a light like a police car's got on top of it. It's flashing. No, it's not. But the lights do go up and down. If you measure them over the period it was rotating about six hours or whatever it was, mm. um, then you can actually decode this, so And this is how they work out the shapes of lots of asteroids <laughs> and so on. Um, the... The problem with that is that uh, you you are fitting a model and what these authors have done is fitted a different model. They've said that, well, it's also consistent with a, a big thin sheet of something. Uh, it has to be very thin and about 50 metres across. and And if you have that rotating in a particular way, then it will produce the same output so what they're saying is hey how do you know that this isn't some spacecraft that's been launched in the very distant past by some intelligent civilization and it's a light sail we oh. know about how to make light sails mm-hmm. you know they've even been experimented with them so light exerts the pressure so this thing uh, gained its speed by traveling across stars by using the light pressure from the star it was sent from and that then uh, pushes it through space and speeds it up uh, and so so they're saying that it was gaining light from the sun as it was leaving, and this was giving it the uh, the anomalous extra velocity. Mm-hmm. Now the arguments against that are basically, well the thing's only doing like 27 kilometres per second, and if you think that's fast, yeah, it's fast compared with your sort of um, toy Lancer or something, yeah. but it's not fast <laughs> compared with space Australia travel. Australia too. Um, and if you want to go between stars, you want to be getting up to a reasonable fraction of the speed of light. and that that isn't the case in this. So if they were so smart and they made this thing, why is it going so slow?
0: Because it's they've braked. They've slowed down. Because you've got to slow down well, if you're going to visit somewhere. Don't you? Well, yeah,
1: I've... <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Could be, I suppose. But I mean, yeah, the thing is that the, the whole story gets more and more tortuous as you go along. Yeah. It's a bit like, uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Yeah. And the other one is, um, you know, you put cars in your garage but when you're standing in the garage you're not a car i mean it's the no. sort of logic that's at the bottom of this sort of thing and the question is should it really be considered for publication that's going to be an interesting one there's a oh, lot okay. of there's a huge twitter storm going on about this when scientists pointing out all these sort of anomalies and uh, the problems with, the, you know, a paper like this being submitted to a, a major journal. OK. Um, because really the, uh, they, they're simply saying that, you know, that, oh, yes, we can fit a different model to it, but there's no rational basis for that. Model essentially. Right, I see. Yeah. That's that's the issue. I mean, of course, it gets a lot of. Uh, they're riffing off the implications. That, that well, yeah, I mean, you know, just the fact that, the. I mean, basically what you do is Occam's razor. It's a, it's a philosophical thing that, you know, basically when you've got a sort of problem, you're trying to understand what's causing it, you usually take the simplest solution as the most likely first. And mm-hmm. the most likely thing is that, hey, we simply didn't detect the gases that this thing was emitting. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. They're saying that the fact we didn't dis, we didn't detect the gases being emitted by this, uh, you know, like a c- comet would, mm. uh, doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means we didn't detect them. Yeah. It just means that it's emitting mainly gas and not much dust. That could also be caused by it being baked as it passed by stars in the past. Or it could There's be something else.
0: It's, for goodness sake, it's come from a, a, a deep space, hasn't it? It hasn't well, come you from know, here. Well, it's been
1: so being cooked by cosmic rays yeah. in the galaxy for, like, millions and millions of years. We don't know what the surface of something that, like that looks like. We've no. never had one to play with. If it's got windows. So, or <laughs> <laughs> when you your windows. <laughs> <laughs> That's a clincher, though, no, isn't yeah, it? It's windows. A, a one, waving glint <laughs> off the window frames, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyways, look, so, anyway... So it's still Still an interesting thing. I mean, you know, astronomers have been waiting centuries to see yeah. something like this. And, and to have
0: it be so weird well, yeah,
1: when it right. turns that's, up. That's right. That's the strange thing, is that it was completely opposite of pretty much everything that yeah. astronomers had predicted. If, if you would come out with us ten years ago and said, I think the first thing going to be
0: look like this, you mm. would have, you know, that wouldn't have got published. Yeah, turn it up. All right. Now, let's talk about our nearby friend. We can wave and say hello to them. Uh, the small Magellanic clouds and the, the small and large, the Magellanic clouds. Yeah. You can spot them in the sky real easy. Yeah, it's really special. It's a so really
1: special thing about the Southern Hemisphere is that the, we can see not only the Milky Way going across the sky, which is our galaxy, we can see two other galaxies just every night mm. uh when there's not too much moon around uh and uh they're called the large and small magellanic clouds because they're small they're dwarf galaxies that are um in close proximity and probably captured by the milky way it's there's still some uncertainty there um they, uh it, and you know they're, they're great things for astrophotography uh
0: they're billions and billions of stars
1: yeah they've they're they they serious they've got billion. they certainly have got billions of stars in each one now the thing is that there's also they've detected in uh, a bridge of material connecting the two so it's called the magellanic bridge it's exceedingly faint but modern astronomers can pick it out and it concludes stars and dust and other stuff mm. spread out uh, so you won't see it with your eye, that one, um, but it's there. And the question is, you know, what is the history of these things? Now, if you go back to books written 20 years ago or more, then uh, the theory was that these things, these two dwarf galaxies, have been, um, you know, with the Milky Way for a long time, just orbiting the Milky Way. It's much bigger, it's a mothership, if you like, and these two galaxies are stuck. We see these when you look into space, and we see other galaxies, and they have dwarf galaxies with them, and so on. Mm. Now. So the issue here is, uh, you know, what is the history of them? And the big thing, the, the clincher now has been the use of the, um, uh, the, the satellite that's measuring ultra-precision measurements of stars billions and billions, or oh, several bi- oh, nearly two billion stars, and they can actually measure the way in which these thing, these two galaxies are moving. Oh. And so they've now sort of produced uh, quite a strong case for the fact that these two objects actually have collided in relatively recent times. By that I mean the last few hundred million years. Okay. So that's recent as far as the life of a galaxy goes. So they have collided and the projection is that they will be sort of absorbed within the milky way so if you came back and look at the milky way in another billion years or so mm. then what was the magellanic clouds will now be a whole bunch of stars uh, in the what's called the halo of the galaxy which is sort of not actually orbiting in the disk of the galaxy they'll be orbiting around the galaxy and
0: so, so, on, so. when a mudfish uh, 200 million years ago was looking up at the sky, it would have seen something very, very different. Yeah, they, over that period of time, it
1: uh, they could have been uh, quite different. Yeah. So, uh, But, you know, that they, they they could have actually been colliding and so you would have had more like something that looked like a single object to right. the mudfish, even with its crappy vision, yeah. uh, and it would have uh, seen a different um, view. But at the So these would have, over that time, will have ch- changed their view quite a bit. Okay. And in time, uh, you know, the computer simulations will be able to run time back several hundred million years and answer your question. Right.
0: Okay. Um, now, w- we love talking about aliens, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's, it's a serious thing. It has, poses serious um, uh, philosophical questions, not moral ones, just why... Did the, was it the Fermi paradox? Why are we alone? Yeah. Um, why does it seem as though we're alone? Well, uh, are we really making much of an effort to say we're home? That's right. Well, you know, this is a, an idea, a way of, um, you know, trying
1: to, A, send a signal out into space to other stars that, hey, we're here. Mm. Um, you can argue with that's a good idea. Uh, but uh, at the same token, you can argue that any civilization that got to our level, and we've only just become technological, so there'll be, most of the others we encounter will be way advanced of ours. Uh, should have the knowledge to do the same thing and that is using pulsed laser light so basically if you're trying to if some civilizations looking at all the stars and they look at our sun uh, they see this really bright spot there and we are for practical purposes invisible even if they could see earth but what you could do from earth is you could shine a, a laser light out through a telescope a powerful laser Megaw- megawatts mm-hmm. uh, out and you can pulse it so it's going at a sort of a a very unnatural rate in the infrared. Which Prime is, numbers. Yeah, well you can actually do all sorts of things. So just e- Even just a pulse. E- so if a distant astronomer was looking at the sun and looking at the spectrum of the sun, they would see this blinking light saying in a particular wavelength and they would know that mm-hmm. there's no physical way that could be done. That is a sign of some intelligent civilization. So it's a very easy way. So all the... Um, anyone looking for alien life in the universe in our galaxy just has to look for that sort of thing. It's so obvious, so simple to do. I mean, we're capable of doing it almost now um uh, a powerful enough laser you need a fairly big telescope to fire the laser out of hang on grant
0: don't we have to point it in the right direction for them to see it you
1: do you have to point it at stars so what you'd be doing is selecting stars that you believe would be like your neighborhood ones for a start you know you wouldn't be looking at ones like you can't tell everybody all at once no, you can't broadcast it. Not as far as we know, but some, you know, maybe there's some way around that, and as well that you can actually do it. But so basically, a computer would be controlling this and sending every uh, 10 minutes of pulse laser towards one star, move to the next one, 10 minutes the next one of your selected sample of stars. You'd choose solar-like stars that we probably know already have planets, so that would be a, a good sub-sample to start with. And so this can be could be doing that. You know, within decades, anyway, you could be doing that if you wanted to spend the money. Mm. Um, the chance of getting a signal back—I mean, if, if you might get one back—in which case you could talk by sort of kind of a Morse code signal of laser pulses between at the speed of light, uh, mm. which is still a pretty long tor- tortuous conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but by the same token, we could be looking at stars using our technology right now, looking for sort of in the infrared part of the spectrum, a an anomalous flashing um variation in the light that's coming from at a particular wavelength and that would indicate
0: that somebody had a doing the same to us, basically. Mm. I'm imagining that dreadful problem that both that all broadcasters have when they have that delay system and they end up <laughs> talking over each other. <laughs> no, sorry.
1: Well, well no. I mean, it just says all sorts <laughs> of interesting questions as to, I mean, the sort of things. How do you, you hang s- up? Well, the sort of thing you'd send is mathematical ratios It's to show the sort of things you know and uh, about yeah. sort of the uh, 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 electron shells of the hydrogen atom, things that any civilization like that would know and recognise that so these are mathemat- universal mathematical things. Could they start take with. a
0: joke? Could they take a joke? But Let's mathematics
1: a is thing. a universal language, so, you know, yeah. you might be able to communicate in mathematics.
0: Yeah.
1: In some way. Yeah. Maybe. All right. Nice problem to solve. Beep, beep,
0: beep, 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 beep. Have we ever gotten to the bottom of
1: the wow signal? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's, well it's still actually being researched Uh, I've seen stuff in that in recent times. If people
0: don't know it was a signal when SETI was searching for stuff 1977 they got something that looked, hang on, that looks intelligent.
1: That's right, there's all been all sorts of possible explanations for that as well as instrumental and other things but it's uh, so it's never been repeated and nobody's come up with a, a particularly good explanation for it. Okay.
0: Grant Christie, thank you so much. Brian Cox, tomorrow night, 9.30, he's a good Chat, yeah, sort of you like bet. the sort of physicist you'd see turn up on Coronation Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're <laughs> tuned, tuned, in, tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live tomorrow. Armistice Day a hundred years ago. Yeah, we're going big on it. Uh, tomorrow evening, why not? When else would we? Because we've been running this beautiful thing called Jesus Make It Stop with Glenn Harper. He's been tremendous and it is the final installment of that series tomorrow night. Plus we have a look at the war poets instead of read me a poem thing. They'll be back next week with either Tim Finn or Sam Hunt, ha <laughs> ha. And also we don't forget the dissidents, those that chose not to fight. Archibald Baxter, field punishment number one, how he copped it from his own countrymen. That'll be tomorrow evening after 11 o'clock. It's news